0: We continue in our study of the sin offerings tonight as part of a bigger study of the various Old Covenant offerings. And that is part of our even bigger study of the whole Old Covenant itself. We started uh, when the church first began in September 2017. We started working our way through the entirety of the book of Genesis. We preached all the way through Genesis and we got all the way through Exodus to chapter 20 which is the giving of the Ten Commandments. But instead of going immediately on to Exodus 21 then and 22 and 23 and so forth, what we did was we stopped in our evening sermon sort of thematically at Sinai. And instead of going consecutively through 21, 22, 23 and so forth, we're looking thematically at the giving of the Old Covenant at Sinai. And we've been studying what the Old Covenant is. We studied the various... Uh, we studied the nature of the Old Covenant. We studied the various types of law in the Old Covenant. We studied the physical tabernacle. We're studying, we studied the garments of the priests and their ordination. And right now we're studying the sin offerings. And the whole, we realize fully, we're not under the Old Covenant. But all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what is the Old Covenant. And, and how does it fit into the bigger narrative of Scripture and what application does something like this, what we just read from Leviticus 5, have for our lives as Christians living in the 21st century here in Barbados? And so, just to frame, this is kind of where we are. We looked at Leviticus 4 last week, which was the beginning of a section on what's called the sin offerings, and we continue with, in that same section on the sin offerings with the passage I just read for you tonight, Leviticus 5.1 through to 6, 7. And this section of Scripture, Leviticus 4, 1 through 6, 7, is about sin offerings. Um, and Leviticus 4 is about sin offerings for unintentional sins. We talked about that last week and we studied that at length. Those are the offerings that you bring to the tabernacle or the Old Covenant Israelite would bring when he came to the Um, tabernacle, when he realized that he had sinned unintentionally. Tonight, we continue with our study of the sin offerings, and we're studying a few more occasions on which you're to bring a sin offering to the tabernacle. The five additional occasions for bringing a sin offering to the tabernacle, which are addressed in our text tonight, are as follows. First, when you sin by omission, when you should have done something, but you didn't. Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 1. When you sin by touching an unclean carcass of a dead animal. Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. When you sin by making a rash oath. Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 4. When you unintentionally breach tabernacle or cultic protocol. Leviticus 5 and verse 15. And then, fifthly, when you sin against God by sinning against people. Leviticus 6, verses 2 and 3. Those are the five additional occasions that we see in our passage tonight for bringing a sin offering. Now, if you were paying close attention when I read our passage a moment ago, let's say you had a really good Sunday afternoon nap and you're mentally clear and you were honed right in as I was reading, you might say, well, what about chapter 5 and verse 17, which says, if anyone sins... Doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. Isn't that a sixth additional occasion for bringing the sin offering? But I would suggest to you that the answer to that question is no, and here's why. That seems to be a summary statement of chapters 4 and 5, before moving on to the sins described at the beginning of chapter 6 which are noticeably distinguishable from the sins mentioned in chapters 4 and 5. So I think it's basically a summary statement and therefore I stand by the assertion that really there's only five additional occasions mentioned in this passage tonight for bringing a sin offering. Tonight we won't spend a ton of time looking at the sacrifices themselves. For a couple of reasons. One is that we we looked at the sin offerings, specifically the actual offerings last week at greater length. But we've also looked at a number of offerings by now. And there's a lot of overlapping material, which I won't bother to rehash. But I want to point out especially one thing, specifically about the sacrifices themselves. And I just point this out in passing before we move on to look at some of the bigger themes of this passage before us tonight. Notice that God made provision for the lower income Israelites, if I can put it like that. Verses 7 and 11 start like this. But if he cannot afford... And then the verses go on to delineate an an alternative sacrifice for the poor. Therefore, I just want to point this out. The atonement wasn't the exclusive... Blessing and benefit of the rich. And that's still the way it is. There is a sacrifice for those who can afford a lot. And there is a sacrifice for those who can afford a little. Jesus is a Savior both for the rich and for the poor. So just note that in passing. Now, with that out of the way, let's focus in on the bigger themes of the passage. Beginning with the observation that the sin offerings in Leviticus 4 and 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 Were different than the burnt offering And that they dealt with matters other than what theologians call propitiation Propitiation, of course, is the turning away of God's wrath from us So we say that Jesus propitiated the wrath of God at the cross That the wrath of God which was directed towards me was turned away from me by Jesus at the cross. And that he bore that wrath himself at the cross. So Jesus propitiated the wrath of God. There are offerings in the Old Covenant which deal with propitiation. And they foreshadow and they signify the work of Christ in propitiating the wrath of God for our sin. Specifically the daily burnt offerings and the the offerings on the Day of Atonement, of course, which happened but once a year. But especially the daily burnt offerings, offered up morning and evening, day after day, most directly teach the need for propitiation. And they functioned in a provisional way to temporally propitiate God's wrath. Against the Israelites we read in Hebrews that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin So we know that nobody was saved by virtue of these but they taught and they instructed about What propitiation is and by the offering up of these things God stayed his hand until an effectual Propitiation could be made at Calvary many many years later. And so the daily burnt offerings were a daily reminder, morning and evening, of the need for propitiation. And of course, the Day of Atonement, which happened but once a year, was in that same vein. The Israelites learned through these things that their sin needed to be propitiated, and that, as we read in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but that God had provided a substitute who would die in their place, And by trusting in the blood of a substitute flowing for them, that they could be forgiven for their sins. Michael Morales observes that the burnt offering is really the fundamental offering which summarizes the telos, or the end, or the goal, of all Old Testament worship. In and through and by the vicarious sacrifice the sins of the people were atoned for, and they ascended to God, as it were. When the sacrifice died, their sin was punished, and in its ascension by smoke, they ascended with it and by it vicariously to God. This was the symbolism of these propitiatory sacrifices, and they foreshadowed Christ Jesus, who in His dying, we die... In His rising, we rise, and in His ascending, we ascend. So that was the burnt offerings, and that's what they dealt with. The sin offerings were different than the burnt offerings, and that they dealt with matters other than propitiation. So as we look at these in Leviticus 4 and 5, in the beginning of chapter 6... We should note that the sin offerings, rather than dealing with propitiation, which is diverting God's wrath away from us, these deal with both with getting rid of pollution, people being defiled, which in theological terms is called expiation. Propitiation turns the wrath of God away from us. Expiation is the cleansing of the defilement of our sin, the cleansing of the pollution of our sin. And in Leviticus 4, that was the foremost theme, was getting rid of the pollution which had occurred because of sin. The second thing that these sin offerings did was that they offered up restitution. And this is the focus in our passage tonight, Leviticus 5 and the beginning of 6. Interestingly, however... This section of Scripture is not civil law requiring restitution between man and man in the case of an offense. Rather, these offerings that we read about in Leviticus 5 and the beginning of 6 make restitution to God for offenses against Him. The sin offerings of the portion of scripture in front of us tonight make restitution to God for sins committed directly and indirectly against him. These offerings make restitution to God when the Israelites sinned against God directly in cases of ceremonial uncleanness and sins regarding the holy things of the tabernacle. And these sacrifices make restitution to God when the Israelites sinned against God indirectly by sinning against other men. So back several months ago when I was preaching on Exodus 21 and 22 and we were dealing with the civil law and we we observed that when someone had sinned against another in ancient Israel he was to make restitution for the loss that that person suffered because of the sin committed against him. One writer correctly said restitution makes perfect sense and is eminently em- biblical. Eminently biblical when the person who cheated pays back the person whom they cheated. So, if I steal a goat from you, then I should have to pay back a goat to you, if and when I'm found out. It's restitution. And that was that principle was recognized and was embedded in Old Covenant civil law. One man needs to make restitution to another when he sins against him. But our passage tonight isn't primarily about one man making restitution to another. Our passage tonight is focused on man making restitution to God when he has sinned against God directly or indirectly. Again, let me, let me reiterate, these sacrifices make restitution to God when an Israelite sinned directly against God in cases of ceremonial uncleanness or sins regarding the holy things of the tabernacle. And these sacrifices make restitution to God when the Israelites sinned against God indirectly by sinning against other men. The first category of sins against God here is pretty straightforward. If someone has mishandled any of the holy things in the tabernacle, let's say that he touched something he wasn't supposed to touch or accidentally offered up an improper animal Or something like that. The principle taught us in the passage before us tonight is that he should make it right. And that he should offer to God an additional sacrifice to make up for the loss that God endured, so to speak. Obviously, God is not profited by our sacrifices. But this is the concept here. The sacrifices were to be very specific and they had certain qualifications. Let's say someone inadvertently began Offering up a sacrifice and then the priest catches a blemish in the sacrifice or something like this Then this person should make restitution to God for offering up an improper animal or something along those lines This is what most of chapter 5 deals with except for verse 1 which deals With which falls in the category of indirect sin against God by sinning against others But most of chapter 5 deals with this kind of sin, which is sitting directly against God with respect to uncleannesses or uh, an error with respect to the holy things. So see, for example, Leviticus 5, 2-6, which read as follows. If anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, And it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt. Or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, When he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed. He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. So that's the first case. Sins directly against God in which restitution must be made to God. That's a pretty... Intuitive and easy to understand concept. So I won't belabor the point. Just pointing it out that it's there in the text as we go through so that we can understand this passage uh, with in reasonable comprehensiveness. <clears throat> the second case, however, is less intuitive, less obvious. But it is an important concept to understand, and it has important application for our lives, even in the new covenant by way of general equity though we're obviously not required to bring animal sacrifices to God anymore in order to make restitution now that Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law and thereby abolished it. But here's the principle which is applicable to us in the new covenant by way of general equity When you sin against your fellow man, you have also sinned against God. And you have to make it right with God, as well as making it right with your fellow man. Look with me at chapter 5 and verse 1, which says, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak he shall bear his iniquity surely this is a sin against fellow man right perhaps somebody has been victimized and needs someone to stand take it, take the witness stand and say i saw so and so harm this person so that there will be justice done in israel and so that the guilty person is convicted and the victim gets justice or perhaps somebody has been falsely accused and there's a need for someone to take the witness stand and say, nah, I, I know that he was you know, in the market when this happened and he wasn't out of, outside town there where the crime occurred or whatever. And somebody needs to come to this fellow's defense so that he will be acquitted and not justly condemned. But this witness won't take the stand. Surely that's a sin against fellow man, Right? verses 5 and 6 pick up on this situation and say when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he has committed etc etc goes on to delineate the specifics of the sacrifice <clears throat> then, ver- then chapter 6 really gets into this in greater length Listen as I begin reading at verse 1. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord. Let me, let me repeat that. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord. How? By deceiving his neighbor. In a matter of deposit or security. Or through robbery. Or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost, and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. In other words, it's not an exhaustive list here. It's just giving examples of the kind of way that someone can sin against the Lord by deceiving their neighbor, and mistreating their neighbor. The consequences in such a case are twofold. First, As chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 say, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt, and will restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So this is man word restitution, right? Again, the Lord requires that if man sins against man, man makes restitution to man. But verse 6 of chapter 6 goes on to say, And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish of the flock, out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. So if a person has sinned against another, he must make restitution to the man and to God. He has sinned, then, both against the man and against God. The Old Covenant inexorably ties sin against man together with sin against God. You cannot sin against man without also, at the same time, sinning against God. In the very act that you sin against man, you are also sinning against God. Restitution must be both manward and Godward then. Though, as I said, we ought not to bring a sacrifice... To God, for restitution under the new covenant, it would be an abomination if you tried to slaughter an animal to make up for what you've done. Lord, wouldn't be pleased about that. Jesus has come and fulfilled the ceremonial law and thereby abolished it. We ought, nevertheless, to think about our sin in conceptually the same way. The same principle still applies, you see. Not only should we make things right with fellow man, but we also need to make things right with God when we sin against our fellow man. And we ought not to think, the other side of the coin is, we ought not to think that we are okay with God. We ought not to think that we are right with God if we haven't yet made ourselves right with our fellow man. This scripture ties both of those things together. And it shows that sin against man is sin against God. According to Leviticus 5 and 6, to sin against man is to sin against God. And restitution to God was required of Old Covenant Israelites in such cases. No one is holy, then, and pleasing to God, and right with God, and walking closely with God, who is not also right with his fellow man. This is the first important observation to make from this passage. Another important observation to be drawn from this passage was that it was a sin to touch human uncleannesses, chapter 5 and verse 3. And yet, Jesus teaches in the parable of the Good Samaritan that those who passed by the man beaten on the road did not love their neighbor. The implication is that the moral law takes priority over the ceremonial law if and when they ever come into conflict. In Luke 10, 25-37, Jesus teaches implicitly that those who didn't help the man did not love him, even though they ought to have. You remember the story, right? I don't think I need to rehash it in great detail. A man was taking a journey, fell among robbers, got beaten. Scripture says they left him half dead. One guy comes along the road, you think, oh, this guy's going to help him for sure. But he crosses the road and goes by. Another guy comes along, and you think, well, surely this guy's going to help him now. Eventually, the Samaritan comes along, helps this guy. And Jesus said, who did the right thing? It was the Samaritan who helped him, right? If these people really might have become unclean by touching this guy, then the implication of Jesus' teaching is that that was a risk that they should have been willing to take that was a length to which they should have been willing to go. In other words, passing by the beaten man in order to remain ceremonially clean was not a good excuse in God's eyes. Even though becoming ceremonially unclean was technically a sin. So the implication then is that if you cannot obey God's moral law, without breaching God's ceremonial law then you actually ought to breach God's ceremonial law in order to keep His moral law so to put this in simple terms if you can't keep the Ten Commandments without violating the commandments given to us in the early chapters of Leviticus then you ought to keep the Ten Commandments and violate the ceremonial laws that are given to us in these chapters. You should prioritize keeping the Ten Commandments This is less applicable to our lives today because we actually don't have a ceremonial law. Remember that Jesus came and fulfilled all the types and shadows and prophecies of the ceremonial law which is why we don't offer up animal sacrifices anymore. We don't have this plethora of animal sacrifices to offer up, because each of these things was teaching us about an aspect of the work of Jesus. And so when Jesus came and fulfilled the work that His Father gave Him to do, all of the various aspects of His work that the Old Covenant sacrifices were teaching us about were no longer, were fulfilled in Him and were therefore no longer needed as the instructive object lessons that God had originally given them to be. And so we we don't have a ceremonial law in the new covenant. Jesus has fulfilled and abolished the ceremonial law. Those were for the Israelites under the old covenant specifically. The civil laws, likewise, were for the Old Covenant Israelites specifically. However, there were things which were right and wrong before there ever was a nation of Israel. And there were things that were also right and wrong in the nation of Israel. And those same things were right and wrong outside the borders of Israel. And those same things continue to be right and wrong, even with the disillusion of the old covenant and the introduction of the new covenant there are just things which are in all places at all times and in all cultures right and wrong you can go back and listen to the sermons at length that I preached a good while back about this threefold division of the law that uh, the reformed tradition makes but basically that's the concept that there were laws given to the Israelites which were for all people everywhere In every culture and every time. And that's what we call the moral law. And then there were laws given specifically to the Israelites. To guide their civic society. And to guide their ceremonies. And. Those laws are the civil. And ceremonial laws respectively. We don't have. The old covenant ceremonial laws. Binding us to obedience today. We don't have the old covenant civil laws binding us to obedience today. But we still have those same moral laws which were applicable before the nation of Israel was constituted, after the dissolution of the nation of Israel and the old covenant, and with the introduction of the new covenant, namely the moral laws. That's just a little bit of review to just help you understand the terms I'm using. So we don't have a ceremonial law. So this, this, la- this second principle is less applicable to our lives today, that the moral law takes precedent over the ceremony. But it is nevertheless instructive for us, this principle. I feel like I might have confused you in the last three or four minutes. So let me, let me back up a second here, all right? The principle that we're talking about overall is that the moral law takes priority over the ceremonial law if and when the two ever come into conflict. And then I digress to define terms, but this is what we're talking about, okay? The moral law takes priority over the ceremonial law if and when they ever come into conflict. I was saying, this is less applicable to our lives today because we don't have a ceremonial law. But it is nevertheless instructive for us because it shows us God's heart for His people. Well, God did want them to understand the principles that He was teaching them in and through the ceremonial laws. And God wanted them to keep them. Critics of this threefold dis- distinction say, well, it was still moral. It was still a moral issue whether or not they kept the ceremonial laws. Yeah, I know. They still ought to have kept them. God really wanted them to keep them. God really wanted them to understand the things that the ceremonial laws were teaching them. But if you couldn't at the same time keep one of God's Ten Commandments, And one of the ceremonial laws, like in Leviticus. So say, for example, you'd become ceremonially unclean by protecting someone from murder. Then you should become ceremonially unclean in order to protect someone from murder. The moral law takes precedence over the ceremonial law if and when the two come into conflict. This shows us God's heart for his people. God wanted them to understand what the ceremonial law was teaching them. He wanted them to keep it, but He didn't want His Old Covenant people to miss the forest for the trees such that they would pass by a beaten man on the road in order to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean. God would be happier then with a man who loves God and neighbor while avoiding ceremonially, ceremonial uncleanness as best as he can, God would be happier with that man, rather than someone who avoids ceremonially, ceremonial uncleanness at all costs, even at the expense of loving God and neighbor. See the difference there? This speaks to the heart of true religion, which even in the Old Covenant was to take care of those in need. Or as James puts it in chapter 1 and verse 27 of his epistle, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In God's providence, we happen to read the end of Deuteronomy 10 tonight, which I, to be honest, hadn't looked at beforehand. We're just reading through consecutively, but it ties right in. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What if the sojourner is ceremonially unclean? Love him. Don't miss the forest for the trees, you see? In summary, we see in this passage in Leviticus 5, in the beginning of Leviticus 6, that God cares how we treat people. We can't act like ceremonial purity makes us holy if we have neglected our neighbor in order to maintain it. And if we sin against man We have sinned against God God cares how we treat people We're not saved By our obedience to this principle Just as we're not saved by our obedience to any principle We're saved by grace Through faith in Christ Jesus But when we come to think about how we ought to live Having been saved by grace through faith. This is a principle that ought to guide us. God cares how we treat people. If we sin against man, we've sinned against God. And we see the heart of God here. In this exaltation of his moral law over his ceremonial law if and when the two come into conflict true holiness looks like not only loving God but also loving our fellow man the two tables of the Ten Commandments show us this the first four pertain to the love of God the last six pertain to the love of man God is not pleased if we just try to keep the first four and neglect the last six just as God is not pleased if we try to keep the last six and neglect the first four you see true holiness looks like not only loving God but also loving neighbor if we sin against our neighbor God says I got a problem with you and you need to make restitution to me as well as making restitution to him May God help us, having been saved by grace through faith, to define holiness properly and to live truly holy lives, loving God and loving neighbor. When we sin, and it's not if we sin, it's when we sin, yes, we do got to make restitution to our fellow man. we got to try to make amends as best as we can and pursue reconciliation on the horizontal front. And we've got to try to make Restitution, make amends, pursue reconciliation on the divine front. You can't do one without the other. Either way, you've got to do both. That's what real holiness looks like. May God help us in this endeavor.